You're listening to At Any Rate, J.P. Morgan's global research podcast, where we take a look at the story behind some of the biggest trends and themes in fixed income currency and commodity markets today. I'm your host, Phoebe White, Senior Rate Strategist and Head of U.S. Inflation Strategy. And today I'm joined by Jay Barry, Co-Head of U.S. Rate Strategy and Chief U.S. Government Bond Strategist at J.P. Morgan. And we're going to talk about our expectations heading into Treasury's August refunding process next week. We're recording this episode on July 24th, and our comments today are based on research published today in our U.S. Treasury Market Daily, which is available to institutional clients on J.P. Morgan Markets. So Jay, uh, if the recent frequency of client questions on Treasury supply is any guide, it seems like there's a lot of anticipation building ahead of next week's refunding announcement. So to start off, let's just talk about our expectations for overall financing needs. You know, we're more than three quarters of the way through the fiscal year. Um, How have we been tracking versus our budget deficit forecast? And what are your latest thoughts for deficits in fiscal years 24 and 25? Yeah, sure, Phoebe. Um, I think you're right. It's become a bigger topic of conversation over the last few weeks. And I don't know if it's because uh, the markets are fully pricing in uh, a 25 basis point hike later this week, or just because we've noticed that the trends in financing have shifted. But we sit here now nine months into fiscal year 23 in the US, and the budget deficit's tracking about $1.4 trillion. So we're already ahead of the deficit that was run by the federal government for all of fiscal year 22. So if we look ahead and we extrapolate the current trend and apply traditional seasonality to the deficit, it would indicate that the budget deficit should be tracking closer to $1.8 trillion overall this year, which would be substantially wider, call it $320 billion wider than our current $1.48 trillion forecast. That being said, we think there's accounting reasons to not change the deficit forecast. And there's really one major reason behind that. So the Supreme Court about three and a half weeks ago overturned the Biden administration's student debt cancellation plan, which has real, no implications for outlays, but does have implications on the accounting basis for deficits. So namely, when the, the debt cancellation plan was first announced last year, it optically reduced the size of the deficit in fiscal year 22 by about $400 billion, but it didn't have any implications for Treasury finance. So we'd expect the reverse to hold true this year, and that's actually the guidance that we've been given recently. So on balance, that's going to make the optically the deficit look about sort of $300 billion smaller than it would all equal. Nevertheless, with net outlays tracking wider, this does indicate to us that the Treasury's financing needs are larger than would be implied by the headline deficit number and larger than we had expected even a few months ago. Um, Beyond fiscal year 23, some of the factors which have contributed to a larger than expected spending in this current fiscal year um, are unlikely to be repeated next year. Um, And we continue to forecast a deficit of about $1.575 trillion in fiscal year 24. Um, Notably, I'd say the really important thing here, and this is perhaps why investors have been this focused on on the supply story, is that it appears that the budget deficit is settling in around 55 to 6% of GDP, which is one to one and a half percentage points or so higher than it was pre-COVID in the prior expansion. So that's a starting point, that budget deficits are trending wider after a few years of improvement coming out of COVID. Um, And it appears that structurally they are running wider as a share of the economy than they had prior to COVID as well. Got it. Um, Okay, so now let's turn to what this means for marketable debt issuance. Um, You know, clearly with deficits kind of trending wider, this implies a pretty sizable financing gap versus the current coupon auction schedule as we head into next year. How should we be thinking about Treasury's financing mix going forward? I mean, clearly we've seen very heavy T-bill issuance since the end of May. We've seen uh, net issuance exceeding 700 billion over that period. Can T-bill issuance continue to fill the gap going forward or should Treasury start increasing coupon auction sizes? 
Yeah, you're right. That with the current auction calendar, it would appear that an aggregate treasury is pretty underfunded um, for this year and, and, and the out years as well. Um, and you've talked about how T-bill issuance to the tune of over $700 billion, it's actually been very well absorbed so far. And on a very near-term basis, we think through now and the end of this calendar year, if not into early 2024, that T-bills will continue to sort of fill that funding gap. And in our latest projections released today, we are looking for over 1.8 trillion in net T-bill issuance in this current calendar year, which if we're right, that would get the T-bill share of debt back to about 20% by early 2024, which is the upper end of the optimal 15 to 20% range identified by both the treasury and the T-back a couple of years past. So with T-bills representing a more normal share of the debt outstanding, and deficits seemingly a bit structurally wider than they were prior to the pandemic, um, we can see that looking ahead over the next number of years, that there's a pretty large gap in between Treasury's expected funding needs and how much borrowing capacity it has from the current auction schedule. So we think it makes sense that at the coming refunding announcement next Wednesday, that Treasury should announce an increase to coupon auction sizes. And this is something that we've been forecasting for about six months and something that was telegraphed at the May refunding as well by the Treasury Department. And as we look to next week's announcement, we think that Treasury is going to increase auction sizes in the short to intermediate sector of the curve by about $2 billion per month, while new issue sizes and reopenings in the 10 to 30-year sector are penciled in to increase $2 billion from their prior sizes. Um, we also think because of this backdrop where there is likely to be a gap between the Treasury's borrowing capacity and funding needs for the coming years, that this is going to be the first of a series of increases to coupon auction sizes. And we think at this point, it makes sense for those coupon auction sizes to increase through probably the May refunding next year. And, and another piece of the pencil, uh, piece of the puzzle, excuse me, which we sort of need to discuss here, which is in, incrementally important in considering the path of treasury finance is that throughout all this, we expect the Fed's QT process to run through late next year. And now that doesn't change the Treasury's total financing needs. It just rebalances them back from Fed hands to private held investors. So given these forecasts, we expect a total of close to 2.8, 2.9 trillion in net privately held borrowing in calendar year 23, with again about 1.8 trillion of that coming in T-bills. In 2024, we actually look for the pace of net issuance to slow to, to 2.4 trillion in net privately held borrowing which does seem odd against the backdrop of wider deficits, but it's notable that with the Treasury's general account normalized by the end of this year, and some of the widening in the deficit this year unlikely to be repeated, it points to a slightly so slower pace of issuance in 2024 than in this year. Got it. Okay. And I guess I would just add to that, you know, as Treasury's been gearing up to make changes to its coupon calendar, um, it's also been focused on whether it should also make increases to TIPS auction sizes. We got some insight into that last quarter as there was a, a charge question on the TIPS program. Uh, and just for context, the TIPS share of outstanding debt had averaged around 9% in the years prior to the pandemic. It dropped sharply to just over 7% in 2020, and it's recovered somewhat since then, but it's still sitting under 8%. And so the question Treasury posed to TBAC last quarter was, what is the appropriate size of the TIPS market as a share of outstanding debt? The way TBAC responded um, is that TIPS are a useful di diversification tool within Treasury's debt management strategy. Um, we generally agree with that. And so we think it does make sense for Treasury to consider making gradual increases 
two tips alongside nominals beginning with the upcoming quarter so that it can limit the decline in the tip share of outstanding debt. Um, you know, certainly end user demand has remained very strong this year. We saw that last week with the, the new issue 10 year auction. It cleared with the highest end user demand on record at 98.5%. Uh, so we think Treasury will increase tips auction sizes. We think the increases will be focused in the five and 10 year sectors and that they will start with a 1 billion increase to the October new, new issue five year. Um, so, you know, kind of taking a step back, we're looking for increases broadly to not only nominal coupon auction sizes, but tips as well. Um, and so, you know, if we're looking to 2024, we're looking at an, an issuance mix that does skew more towards coupon issuance rather than T-bills. We should be seeing a pretty significant increase in duration supply. Can you put that in context for us? What are the implications for markets? Yeah, sure. You're right. It's going to be a significant increase in, in duration risk that's being issued to the market. So if we're right and our forecasts come to fruition for both this year and next, um, the pace of Treasury issuance is going to increase from about $2.3 trillion 10-year Treasury equivalents this year in 2023 to over $3 trillion in 10-year equivalents next year, which would be about a 30% increase year over year. Um, so that's pretty sharp overall. And this would be just about only 4% below the peak we observed in 2021. But I think important if we take a step back that at that time in 2021, the Fed was still engaged in a large scale QE program, which was effectively dampening the amount of duration risk that was being auctioned to the market. So this is going to be pretty high from an historic perspective. And we think that this could make the demand backdrop more challenging. So we're at an interesting crossroads here. Treasury yields are sitting, depending on where you are along the yield curve, at their highest levels in 10 to 15 years. And if we're right, and the Fed is very close to finishing up its hiking cycle, this should make risk-free assets more attractive, particularly if we're right that inflation does moderate in the coming months as well. But the important sort of offset here for us is that we're transitioning um, the sort of support with respect to demand in the Treasury market away from a series of less price-sensitive investors to more price-sensitive hands. And why do we say that? Well, we look at sort of the pillars of treasury demand over the last 10 to 20 years as have been supported by three subsets of investors who we think are less price-sensitive. The first is the Fed. And we know that um, QE has shifted to QT. And we do think um, that we'd expect QT to run in the background through at least through the end of next year. Separately, um, the banks and the U.S. banks, which had been buying treasuries to sort of invest in excess deposits in the post-COVID period, have turned net sellers this year. And we do not expect that demand to return in spades anytime soon. And finally, um, foreign official demand, which locally this year in the first half has been a bit stronger as the dollar has weakened. But if we're right, and in the second half, the dollar strengthens modestly on, the str on, a, on a, an overall index basis, that's going to sort of restrict demand for treasuries. And just more long term, we look at foreign exchange reserves, which are not growing as aggressively as they were a decade ago, and that the dollar share of those reserves are not growing either. It just means to us that the foreign official demand is not going to keep pace with this very swift growth of the treasury market. So we're going to need to rely on more price-sensitive investors. Um, obviously, um, asset managers come to mind. But as we can kind of see right now, they are pretty close to benchmark on duration. And for them to continue to add treasuries, you'd need to see yield stabilize. And we think overall fixed income returns stabilize and turn positive as well. So that's going to be slow to emerge. 
we can look to the to the pension community and in particular the private defined benefit community and to be fair as we look at it through the stripping data on a monthly basis it seems like demand has been pretty consistent and pretty firm for the past year and a half but if we look at it um, aggregate funded ratios have not increased much this year and we do not think that fixed income asset allocations have increased materially as well so while that demand is likely to be ongoing we don't expect it to increase further, um, which really leaves us with maybe looking at the levered fund community as well. And obviously, it seems like this is a lot of focus from, from um, supervisors and regulators more recently because the Fed did ask a question on the Treasury cash futures basis in its re- recent um, credit officer opinion survey. So if we're talking about it, to kind of loop it back to the original part of the conversation, duration supply, which is increasing at the same time that we're transitioning the base of demand, we do think this means even as the Fed goes on hold later this summer, and we think it's as early as this week, it's going to restrict and restrain how far Treasury yields could fall even once the Fed goes on hold. Got it. Thank you for that. I think supply will be an interesting point of conversation in the coming months, it seems. Um, all right. So let's just, uh, before wrapping it up, I want to turn to buybacks. You know, We learned at the May refunding that Treasury expects to begin a regular buyback program in 2024. Uh, Treasury provided an outline of how a program might be structured, but of course, there's still a lot of details to be hammered out. What might we learn from Treasury regarding the buyback program next week? Yeah. So in the questionnaire that was sent out to primary dealers uh, about a week and a half ago, there was a line of questioning with respect to the buyback facility. And I think it makes sense, like you said, Phoebe, in order for this facility to open up sometime next year, there's more details that need to be hammered out. So um, the, the questions from Treasury, I think, are all along the line of sort of more technical features to the buyback program, which can help it sort of further refine its operations as it sets to open them up next year. Um, and the few things that we'd expect to find out is, one, um, when buyback operations begin, will the Treasury Department decide to exclude certain QSIPs from its buyback purchases or buyback um, operations when it actually opens them? And, and we think that makes sense. While this buyback facility is going to be smaller um, than any sort of um, Fed QE program, we think you should use Fed best practices here. And the Fed did like to exclude on the runs near off the runs and cheapest to deliver into futures contracts, just to make sure that the Fed was not sort of further exaggerating securities, which were already displaying some sort of um, liquidity premium or scarcity premium. So we think it does make sense to exclude on the runs, near off the runs and CTDs. Um, The Fed, I'm sorry, excuse me, the Treasury, um, old habits die hard, um, also did ask about whether it should consider um, a framework for looking at treasuries, which are, are heavily owned by the Fed SOMA portfolio. And we think that makes sense as well, that it should probably not um, decide to purchase treasury securities, which are held um, at the maximum 70% limit by, by the SOMA portfolio, and maybe sort of scale in with limits for securities that are owned um, anywhere from 50 to 70% in size. And finally, I guess the question is, is how does treasury consider when it buys securities? Um, and, and we think it should sort of have a relative value mindset when it does so. So it's easy to construct um, uniform liquidity curves based off of off the runs, which is what we do with our own sort of um, treasury par curve. And we think treasury should look to valuations versus a par fitted curve when considering what securities to buy along the yield curve, perhaps in concert with sort of dealer positions in a given sector and overall liquidity conditions as well. So we think you're going to learn more about the technicals of the buyback facility so it can pave the way for actually opening up by early next year. 
All right. Thanks, Jay. I think that's a good place to close. Institutional clients can find more on these topics on JP Morgan Markets or reaching out directly with questions. Stay tuned for more episodes of, at any rate, JP Morgan's global research podcast series. This communication is provided for information purposes only. Please read JP Morgan research reports related to its contents for more information, including important disclosures. Copyright 2023, JP Morgan Chase & Co. All rights reserved. This episode was recorded on July 24th, 2023.